Good afternoon and welcome to the Betsy and Walter Stern Conference <coughs> Center here at Hudson Institute. <coughs> My name is Ken Weinstein. I'm president and CEO of Hudson Institute. Our mission at Hudson is to promote American leadership and global engagement for a secure, free, and prosperous future. And key to our mission is assuring U.S. technological leadership. Our founder, Herman Kahn, the the great futurist and strategist saw the uh, interaction between strategy, technology, and demography as critical to shaping the future, as critical to shaping the global policy landscape, uh, often in ways that more conventional and nearsighted policy analysts couldn't imagine. <clears throat> and uh, U.S. technological leadership, as I mentioned, is core to our mission. It's also core to America's ability, more importantly, to stay ahead of strategic competitors and rogue threats. We at Hudson do a significant amount of work on defense policy, on information technology, intellectual property, uh, IP, and have key initiatives on defense technology cooperation, biodefense, quantum computing, missile defense. In all these areas, American leadership is critical. Now, our work on space dates back to uh, the days of our founder, Herman Kahn, in the early 1960s. Uh, more recently, our work in the defense sector has included uh, some of the earliest work uh, in the United States on China's then burgeoning attempts at uh, uh, seeking space dominance more than a decade ago, and more recent work on space-based missile defense. The initiative that brings us together today is uh, our work is called Space 2.0. It's directed by my colleague Brant Pascoe, and it's an important initiative that, again, recognizes the critical importance of maintaining U.S. leadership in space at a time of profound transformation and growth in the industry and in its allied fields in the face of global competition. And key to maintaining this leadership is a reevaluation of the U.S. global and legal landscapes governing space. We kicked off this uh, event series and this program in May was an event featuring the Executive Secretary of the National Space Council, Dr. Scott Pace. And um, we're here today with uh, two extraordinary public servants and a, a panel of leading experts to continue this, uh, this series. Um, as I think all of us know, uh, to meet the challenge of maintaining U.S. Uh, leadership in space, which is a priority for President Trump, uh, the President has entrusted Vice President Pence, a good friend of Hudson Institute, as chairman of the National Space Council to work with Congress and the executive branch to reshape the legal environment for the commercial use of outer space. And today we really have an extraordinary opportunity, as I mentioned, to hear from two of the individuals leading the charge uh, for reform in this area. The chair of the House Science and Space and Technology Committee, Representative Lamar Smith, as well as the cabinet secretary who's been entrusted with taking the lead on space issues, Secretary of Commerce Wilbur Ross. Secretary of Commerce Ross will engage in a dialogue with my colleague Brant Pascoe shortly after uh, Chairman Smith offers a keynote remark. And uh, all of these comments will be followed by a brief coffee break, and then uh, we'll have a panel discussion of senior government officials, all from the Department of Commerce, <coughs> responsible for executing the reform agenda laid out by the Trump administration. So. Uh, let's get underway. I want to offer heartfelt thanks to our Space 2.0 Advisory Board, Joe Pelton, Pierre DeFries, Dale Hatfield, uh, Rob McDowell, and others for the significant time they put into this effort, as well as Hudson Trustee uh, Dr. Margaret Whitehead, who has been really spearheading this effort uh, to get us moving here. 
Now I have uh, the distinct honor of introducing an extraordinary public servant, uh, Congressman Lamar Smith, the chairman, as I mentioned, of the House Space Science, Science, Space, and Technology Committee. Chairman Smith is an extraordinary public servant. He's been in Congress for more than three decades and has had a long and has a long and distinguished record on critical policy issues as the former chairman of the House Judiciary Committee uh, and also uh, known for his leadership as chairman of the House Ethics Committee. As uh, chairman of the space of the Science, Space, and Technology Committee, Chairman Smith has jurisdiction over budgets totaling more than $42 billion, programs at NASA, the Department of Energy, EPA, the National Science Foundation, the FAA, the National Institutes of Standards and Technology, essentially most of the programs that are critical to national uh, research and development and also critical to uh, scientific discovery, space exploration, and new technologies. Sorry to say that this will be his last term in Congress, and uh, as he completes his third term as uh, chairman of the committee, uh, he's, um, his, uh, the distinctions are far too many to mention, but let me simply note that in 2011, uh, he was named Policymaker of the Year by Politico for his work on patent reform legislation. And uh, without any further ado, let's give a warm Hudson Institute uh, welcome to Chairman Lamar Smith. Ken, thank you. Ken, thank you for that introduction. Thank you for making the Science Committee jurisdiction sound so good. And uh, appreciate being with you all here today. And I know Secretary Ross is going to be with us in just a few minutes, too. And it's nice to sort of uh, coordinate with him and be talking about some of the same subjects today as well. I want to thank you for letting me um, speak a little later than originally uh, advertised. I was chairing a full committee hearing until about 15 minutes ago and got here as, as quickly as I could. Uh, by the way, even that hearing had to do a little bit with space because it's the first hearing ever held on the subject of urban, what is it? Uh, urban area mobility vehicles, otherwise known as flying cars. And so we had wonderful witnesses to talk about the flying cars. And for the first time ever, I actually presented all members of the committee and all five witnesses with a uh, present, which was a model flying car uh, that I saw for the first time when I was walking around the mall several weeks ago. And I was just spellbound. I've been keeping, why am I talking about this? I'm supposed to be talking about space. Anyway, I was spellbound because I've been fascinated by flying cars. I have a I've had articles, I've been collecting articles since I was in elementary school. So when I see my first flying car, I stopped, ordered one immediately, uh, flew it several weeks ago in Lincoln Park, not far from the Capitol. It performed admirably. And so uh, I knew it wasn't just pie in the sky, it was a real thing. So that's why I passed them out today. So anyway, so space one way or the other, whether it's flying cars or whether it's talking about what's gonna be up there in the coming uh, years. Uh, also, um, I usually don't read prepared remarks. I am today and I'm, uh, reminded of what William F. Buckley once said, and that is that one should pay the audience the ultimate compliment of preparing remarks for delivery. So that's what I've tried to do today. A generation ago, space was largely an unexplored frontier. Few would have imagined a world of reusable private space rockets, global communications and remote sensing, private space stations, celestial resource prospecting, or on-orbit manufacturing. A highly dynamic international security environment has changed space from a sanctuary to a congested and contested domain. At the same time, the private sector is opening up new frontiers and taking an increasingly important role in outer space. 
New technologies and novel strategies are lowering the cost of access to space. The standardization of space technologies and satellite platforms enable a robust human presence in the sky above us. New entrants such as SpaceX, Blue Origin, and Virgin Galactic, along with companies with a long heritage like Lockheed and Boeing, are investing significant capital in space exploration. Private equity is funding a new era of innovation that is changing the economies of space activities. With this evolution, of course, comes new challenges. The Outer Space Treaty was developed in 1967 to establish a framework for international space law. Among other provisions, the Outer Space Treaty requires national governments to be responsible for all space activities carried out by their nation, whether the missions are led by government or private companies. American space operators have long faced uncertainty about which federal agency has responsibility for approving non-traditional space initiatives and ensuring compliance with the Outer Space Treaty. In some instances, this uncertainty has constrained capital formation, driving American companies overseas. With increased commercial activity in space, this uncertainty is becoming an even larger problem. Outdated and cumbersome regulations continue to hinder innovation by companies that focus on launch, remote sensing, and non-traditional space technologies. Those are some of the challenges we face, but there are solutions. Continued U.S. leadership in outer space requires us to maximize and integrate the strengths of all three groups of stakeholders, military, government research, and commercial. This will result in a new concept of national power in outer space. We must use the energy of a vibrant private sector and create laws and policies that bring all three communities together, working toward a common end, American leadership in space. The House Science, Space, and Technology Committee is contributing to this effort. Two of our bills this year established the United States as the jurisdiction of choice for private space activities. The first bill, the American Space Commerce Free Enterprise Act, provides a legal and policy framework that simplifies the space-based remote sensing regulatory system, enhances compliance with international obligations, improves national security, and removes regulatory barriers facing innovative space operators. The need for this legislation became clear during the previous administration when serious uncertainty arose after U.S. space exploration companies sought payload approval from the Department of Transportation for non-traditional space activities. But the DOT payload approval process is only designed to prevent the launch of payloads that jeopardize American interest in safety. It does not provide for the authorization and supervision of in-space activities as required by the Outer Space Treaty. So the executive branch has been unable to assure the private sector that new and innovative space missions would be approved for launch. Another important aspect of the bill is updating space-based remote sensing regulations. Hundreds of private remote sensing satellites orbit the Earth today, and we all rely on these satellites for accurate mapping, enhanced agriculture, and improved weather forecast. But existing law governing the licensing of space-based remote sensing was enacted in 1992 at a time when there were no private remote sensing companies. The law put the burden on the applicant to justify its operations. This is stifling private innovation and putting U.S. industry at a disadvantage. 
Our bill fixes this broken system by providing a streamlined licensing process aimed towards approval, not denial. This legislation will spur investment and innovation, which will create high-paying jobs, high-value jobs across the country. It increases American competitiveness and attracts companies, talents, and money that would otherwise go to other countries. The bill also consolidates regulatory authorities into one federal agency, the Secretary of Commerce's Office of Space Commerce. The result is a single decision point for the authorization of activities in outer space. In short, the American Space Commerce Free Enterprise Act ensures the U.S. and its workforce will benefit from the new space economy. The second Science Committee bill, the American Space Safe Management Act, establishes a space traffic management framework built on science and technology. Uh, it is also based upon space situational awareness and space traffic coordination. Today, there are 1,100 active satellites in orbit. In a few years, there will be tens of thousands. A variety of new spacecraft soon will go into operation. They could include private space stations, on-orbit repair and refueling satellites, and celestial resource prospectors. This act directs the administration to coordinate its federal research and development investments in space traffic management. It directs the administration to work collaboratively with the private sector and establishes a NASA Center of Excellence that will develop, lead, and promote research in space traffic management. This bill also creates a Civil Space Situational Awareness Program, SSA, within the Department of Commerce. Commerce will provide a basic level of SSA information and services free of charge to the public. While the Department of Defense retains the information gathering resources currently used to compile the catalog of space objects, commerce will augment that with data from other sources, including the private sector and foreign partners. And the act establishes a space traffic management framework. The framework consists of voluntary guidelines developed by the government, standards developed by industry, and a pilot space traffic coordination program. The pilot program allows the government and stakeholders to experiment and develop best practices to manage space traffic. It is a common sense first step in what will be a long-term process of creating a comprehensive space traffic management framework. Both of these bills direct the Commerce, Department of Commerce to be responsible for carrying out the supervision of space activities. The reason for that is simple. Because of its longstanding mission and agency culture, the Commerce Department is best equipped to help entrepreneurs and innovators build companies and succeed in business. Many of the bill's goals have been included in President Trump's space policy directives. And Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross announced a major reorganization of his department that reflects our bill's provisions. To ensure success, Secretary Ross is putting people, money, and expertise into a new Space Policy Advancing Commercial Enterprise, uh, acronym of course, SPACE, uh, administration and a restructured Office of Space Commerce. We should thank the President, the Vice President, and Secretary Ross for carrying out this reorganization. The momentum is building for these bills, and the last step before becoming law is approval by the U.S. Senate. We need champions there to get these bills through committee and onto the Senate floor. Far-sighted and determined policymakers and scientists 
led the charge for the first wave of space exploration. Now it is our responsibility to expand our leadership in space, working together with visionaries like Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, and Elon Musk. The history of space exploration will feature this bipartisan, bicameral bill as having invigorated the next space age and maintained America's leadership in space. America is the prominent actor on the global stage of outer space. We have the responsibility and the expertise to guide the world toward a peaceable, prosperous, and safe space environment. But we need to act and act now. Thank you all. To have the 39th Secretary of Commerce, Wilbur Ross, Wilbur L. Ross Jr. with us today. Of course, uh, Secretary Ross is the principal voice of commerce of business in the Trump administration, ensuring that U.S. entrepreneurs and businesses have the tools they need to create jobs and economic opportunity. And uh, Secretary Ross is, of course, well known as a man with over a half century experience in investment banking and private equity, restructuring over $400 billion in assets in industries too diverse to list today and serving as chairman or lead director of more than 100 companies in over 20 countries. As chairman and chief strategy officer of W.L. Ross and Company LLC, he is a longtime friend of Hudson Institute he is also the only person, more importantly, elected to the Private Equity Hall of Fame and the Turnabout Management Hall of Fame. He's been decorated by the governments of uh, South Korea and Japan, among others. Uh, when you look at his bio and when you chat with him, you realize this is a man who has led an absolutely extraordinary life in every dimension, and he is now de dedicating himself with the same insight, same energy, uh, same force of uh, personality to public service. And fortunately, for those of us interested in the area of space and the future of space travel and the future of, of space satellite, satellite communication, he is taking the lead on the potential on this important area, and he fully grasps the potential for private sector space travel and exploration. Uh, his goal is nothing short, and I quote him, to make, quote, to make the United States the flag of choice for space launches and space activities. Of course, he serves on the National Space Council, which is chaired by Vice President Pence, who, as I mentioned earlier, is another longtime friend of Hudson Institute. The Vice President has delegated to the Commerce Department responsibility for overseeing increased government cooperation with commercial space industry and easing related regulations. This requires a different kind of restructuring than the kind that you've uh, done over 55 years in industry. but. Uh, this being government, it requires someone of your talents, uh, as it were, to reform the structures governing space situational wellness, space traffic management, and um, broader space policy. Uh, delighted to have you in conversation today, and especially delighted to have you in conversation with Hudson Institute fellow Brant Pascoe, who leads our Space 2.0 initiative. Brant is uh, an attorney by training. He's the former Associate General Counsel of InQtel. He, has had long and distinguished government service of his own at the Department of uh, Homeland Security and at the Department of Transportation. He's served on numerous federal advisory boards at the Department of State and at the Commerce Department, particularly at the Defense Trade Advisory Group at the Department of State and the Regulation, Procedures, and Technical Advisory Committee at the Department of Commerce. 
I know all of us are looking forward to what will be an absolutely fascinating conversation. So let's give Secretary Ross a warm Hudson Institute welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If, if I can address a small housekeeping matter before we start our conversation, Mr. Secretary. Um, the Secretary has agreed to take some questions at the end. Um, we ask that they be kept topical to the subject of space policy. And one of my colleagues has cards, and we'd like uh, questions to please be written and passed down to the end, and someone will collect them and bring them up, and we'll try to, we'll try to get people's questions addressed. But uh, thank you for your cooperation in that. Um, so, Mr. Secretary, thank you again for joining us today. Uh, we're really pleased to have you here. It's a great honor, and it's nice to be able to chat with you again. Um, goodness, the topic of space, right? Um, uh, there's such a dynamic area and so many things going on. And, it, it, you know, if you look back over the changes just in the last 15 years, right, where things were overwhelmingly focused on purely telecommunications. and and now we see um, capital going into all sorts of areas, every conceivable facet from space transportation, yes, of course, telecoms, but imagery, looking towards manufacturing, prospect, I mean, the, the, the list of areas is just explosive. Um, and uh, I guess it would be interesting to have your perspective on why this at all is important, what it means for the United States, and where you see this going. Sure. Well, first of all, as to the explosion of activities, I think that's a natural consequence of two things. One, in the beginning, the whole objective was get there, learn something about what was there. Now, as it becomes a little more mature, the exercise becomes, well, now we're there. What do you do with it? How do you make something out of it, something useful, something constructive? So I think it's the logical next phase as are the support functions. Having all these satellites out there means there's a resupply needed, means there's maintenance needed, means all kinds of things are needed. So it will in turn spawn uh, quite a lot of support industries, let alone all the new applications of it. To me, the most novel new application uh, a relatively new one, is um, Richard Branson has signed up 600 people who have prepaid $250,000 each. That's $150 million for a 20-minute ride into space. It's the beginning of space tourism. And it's extraordinary to me that there's so much interest that he's able to accomplish that. That, to me, is the, the tip of the iceberg of another whole new set of activities that eventually leads to colonization, eventually leads to space manufacturing, eventually leads to space mining, leads to all kinds of potential uh, activities. That's fascinating. So then that leads to naturally to a second question, right? Where um, this extraordinary level of entrepreneurship that's, that, is, uh, 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 that we're seeing unfold. Um, 
What is it? What is your vision for how the Commerce Department and the U.S. government as a whole can foster and facilitate all of this? Uh, sure. Well, it's really essential that we do because in the present budget-constrained environment, if we don't have huge participation by the private sector, we're not going to get anywhere. No, that's so right. it, this is not just something that would be nice to do with private sector. It is absolutely essential that we do it with private sector. To encourage private sector, we need to make some different policies from what we've had. Space regulation is basically obsolete. Most, much of the enabling rules are 20 or more years old. Well, the space world of today bears very little resemblance to what it did 20 years ago, and 20 years from now it'll bear probably very little resemblance to what we have today. So we need a space regulatory environment where the pace of regulatory change matches the space of technological innovation. So far, there's been a terrible gap between the two. Second, we need to think through the importance of quick decisions. One of the things I learned in private sector, a quick no is often much more valuable than a really slow Yes, um, because the really slow less interferes with decision-making and planning and things like that. So we've, we've adopted some new things. We've cut for the remote sensing, which is one of our main regulatory activities, cut the time to get a license from over 200 days to an average of about 90 days. Now, that's probably still too long, but at least it's a big improvement from where it had been. Uh, we've also initiated some other ideas, such as uh, had been every time you did a launch with a camera, even though it was the same launch vehicle, same camera as last time, you had to go through the whole regulatory process. Why? So what we've now put in is a concept if it's the same everything, there's a time period during which your authorization prevails, regardless whether you just do one launch or five or ten or whatever number. So simple-minded, if you will, terrestrial observations, uh, how to make the regulatory process smoother. Um, trying to create a whole-of-government approach is, is another thing. It's kind of fragmented now. We're doing some, a fair amount to consolidation of it, but there are still pieces that are not all in one place. And as we absorb other pieces, there will obviously have to be transition periods so that the change is seamless. For example, we're taking over a big role in space situational awareness and space traffic management. Air Force will be the one who primarily does it, but their mission is a very precisely defined one. All the interaction with private community, all the developments that are necessary for private community are not really their focus, they're not really their province, so there's room for us there, including 
uh, in technological change. Uh, at present, there's only measurement of objects. There's 600,000 objects floating around out there. Only uh, 10 or 12,000 of those are 10 centimeters or more in diameter. And yet the smaller ones can do an awful lot of damage to a solar panel. So taking the universe of objects down in size and up in number is one of the objectives uh, that we will have. Second thing is working with private sector, developing al algorithms to refine our capability to determine probability of collision is an important thing. Um, so there are lots of things like that that are needed to make it more user-friendly, more adaptable to commercial sector. And so those are some of the areas we'll be trying to uh, pursue in the STM and SSA. That's very helpful. Thank you. So as we're looking at this really dynamic commercial marketplace and as it's evolving and, and growing with a tremendous amount of venture capital and private equity flowing into things, um, do you see that there are particular areas where the United States has a natural competitive advantage uh, with respect to other countries? Well, I think in anything to do with semiconductors and software, we clearly are very important leaders uh, globally. We also are gradually developing extreme amounts of experience in launches. So you're starting to see the concept of reusable launch material. A very simple concept, but very hard to hard. execute. Um, nonetheless, it's been accomplished. And uh, the reason I focus on that is, to me, the key to making space really big, really useful, and really successful is making it less expensive. It costs too much to do a launch. It costs too much to get things up there. So the idea of reusability is, is a very central one. Um, the idea eventually of having some sort of activity, say, on the moon, so that it could be a way station en route to Mars or to some other longer destination in order to take advantage from a payload point of view of only needing the fuel supply initially to get to the moon. And therefore, if you can then refuel on the moon, or in some other way that took advantage of lesser gravity, then you can make things more economical. So I think thinking a little bit outside the box is going to continue to characterize the developments here. And frankly, private sector is just better at thinking outside the box than public sector is. There are too many inherently conservative elements to public sector activity that uh, sometimes can inhibit innovation. Uh, but if you're a Jeff Bezos and you're writing the check and you're bold and willing to take some risks, much more likely to have a big innovation than uh, a government is, even if we have exactly the same quality of scientists and everybody else. 
So it's, it's not only essential from an economic point of view, it's also far preferable from an accomplishment point of view to have the private sector in action. Well, that's, that's an interesting perspective, and it raises a, uh, indirectly a question of governance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as we, we see some beginnings of this, right, there's talk of maybe a space force, um, but to directly link it to your comment, where we're looking at using the moon as a way station, we've mentioned prospecting, um, manufacturing. Some of this will, of course, be automated, but there are also going to be people out there at, sure. at various times. And um, so talk to us a little bit about your perspectives and philosophy on what is the legal infrastructure that we're supposed to be putting into place to govern all of this activity, because there's not a lot of there there yet. No, there isn't. The The main thing is the old UN work from, what, 50-some-odd years ago, and not even all countries are signatories uh, to the UN document, but there are now some 70 countries that are actually doing something in space. Now, in some cases, it's just a vanity thing. Put a man up there so they can say they did so, but quite a few of them are really serious and want kind of robust uh, program. So there is going to be more and more competition, if you will. And there's some interesting questions. We believe, for example, that there are lots of minerals, especially uh, valuable uh, metals and rare earths, on asteroids. Well, how do you establish title to them? How do you establish mining rights? Does it first come, first serve? Is it the guy with the biggest spacecraft, the guy who puts the first weapons there? How do you establish who's really going to be doing it? Um, space traffic management. Think how complicated highway traffic management would be in the absence of any police force. Well, there is no police force in outer space. So uh, at present, all one can do is say, beware, it looks to us like there's this object that may be heading toward your satellite, uh, and then perhaps help with an algorithm to determine the probability of that being correct. But if the guy doesn't want to take the advice, there's no mechanism. So one thing is what would be the legal structure But to me, the more fundamental question is, legal structure doesn't mean a lot if there isn't some sort of enforceability to it. And that's a huge open question. Um, So those are the kinds of things that we will be uh, exploring. Manufacturing. Manufacturing, there's already a fellow who took advantage of the fact that a low-gravity environment changes the characteristics of materials. And this fellow has created optical fiber cable that supposedly is one-third more effective than the existing stuff. And it all came from a little experiment in outer space. Um, Nanotechnology. There's a lot of work being done about nanotechnology in space. A lot of work in pharmaceuticals. All kinds of materials take on different properties when they're in outer space. So 
we can't even guess just yet how far that will go. But for sure, there'll be lots of commercial fallout from it. And interesting questions, how do you then commercialize that? Um, and uh, so there'll be a lot of work done in all of those uh, areas. Very complicated question now. As you know, 2024 is the, supposed to be the privatization in some form of the, the SSL. Well, what does that really mean? How do you do it? Uh, how do you protect the national interests? How do you deal with the commercial interests? And how do you really make it an economical thing for people to do? Those are all big, big challenges and for the moment, unsolved uh, questions. So that then leads to perhaps to a, another natural question. We talk a lot about, well today we've talked a lot about the commercial aspects of space and, and the fact that this is already a multi-billion dollar industry and it's only going to become more significant. Um, going back 20 years ago, um, much of the discussion on space would have focused on just the national security aspects. And those are, of course, still extraordinarily important. Oh, they surely are. If anything, more important. So um, how do you see U.S. leadership in commercial space interacting or affecting those national security concerns? Well, th think about it historically. The jet airplane was invented for military use. And it then became a commercial transformation of the whole transportation industry. So there's plenty of precedent for things that emanated from the military gradually having a, a very important impact on private sector. But these, whether Space Force comes into being very quickly or not is outside of our province. But the importance of space from a military point of view, I think, cannot be underestimated. Think about if you're trying to fight a war and somebody figured out how to knock out your GPS, you've got a real problem, a real problem, let alone using the, the satellites or other things in space as weapons themselves. And I think it was no accident that the Chinese a little while ago deliberately destroyed one of their own satellites. I, I feel that was more or less, they just wanted to show us they could do it. Um, so protection of both the commercial and the government satellites, military or NOAA or NASA or whatever, those are, gonna, those are not going to go away as issues. Those are going to be very big issues and there probably will be some whole set of industry figuring out how do you protect these very valuable assets. Think about it. If we get to where we have 15,000 satellites up there, multiply that by whatever number you want for cost, that's a heck of a big set of assets mm -hmm. up there. And yet for the moment, what is their protection? What is their protection against civilian attack? What is their protection against robust military attack? So the, the whole national defense question interacts in a very complicated way 
with the commercialization of, of space. Mm -hmm. So then you have a really exciting job right now when you're setting up the, uh, you know, what's been called the one-stop shop, right? And uh, we're still learning what that means. I'd be interested to know a little more about your vision for the Commerce Department and how, you know, it's a complex regulatory environment. You have the FCC, of course, you have a limited bit of DOD, you have FAA, um, and now Commerce being put up as sort of the one-stop shop. How, what's your vision for that? How do you see Commerce's role? Well, uh, as a minimum, we would have the direct functions that are being allocated to us, and we would also try to be the interface, kind of the storefront through which um, outside commercial parties could participate. So try to coordinate with some of these other agencies. We work with all the other agencies anyway, so that's nothing new. It's just the intensity of our interaction with them is going to grow for two reasons. One, the activity itself is expanding, a lot more units, uh, and second, we're being given more roles. So how it eventually revolves three, four, five years down the road, that's obviously still a work in progress. But the concept of simplification, the concept of trying to get as close as we can to a one-stop shop, I think those are enduring concepts, and I think they're valid concepts. So as part of that, then, obviously there's a lot that the executive branch can do with its own authority. But some things you need Congress to step up to the plate. Mm -hmm. So, where do you see where do you where do you see the areas where you really need help from the Congress in order to put this vision into full effect? Well, right now, as you're aware, there is some pending legislation. Uh, Chairman Smith was just here. I assume he probably talked some about what's going on in the Congress right now. But there's a lot of interest in the Congress. There are a lot of congressional people who have a big history with NASA. There are people who have a big history with NOAA, which is a part of commerce. And there are people who touch on other aspects, because just as there are the various regulatory entities, so are there various congressional oversight uh, activities. So that's its own complicated situation, and uh, they're, they're threading their way just as we are. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I want to be mindful of your time. I, I really appreciate you being so generous with us, and I want to be sure that I get to some questions from the audience, so I'll limit myself to just one more. But as a, just as a, as a parting, um, so if there were just one thing that needed to be changed, if you could do one thing and do it now, what, what do you think would be the thing that should be top priority? Um, have unlimited resources. <laughs> <laughs> That's a Congress thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm not sure who's, who's the, uh, the holder of all of the questions from the audience, but if we could get those. Um, and we'll, while they make our you way. You bring them up. Are you racked and stacked these at all? All right. Oh, some more to be collected over uh, here. Sir, over here. Let's see. 
trying to see if I can actually... I hope them. they'll be edited so they're on the easy ones. <laughs> well, I can't read everything on this card, but it has... It, the, the, the general topic is how is the U.S. and its allies going to deal with the growing problem of space garbage? Well, space debris is a huge problem. Think about it. 600,000 objects going around with nobody driving them. 600,000 objects going at something like 14,000 miles an hour. That's a real problem mm -hmm. of debris. It, it's one of the few times uh, in the world that we confront aggressive debris. Debris really coming at you as opposed to being more or less inert. So that's a whole new set of relatively terrifying experiences. Mm -hmm. The space situational awareness and space traffic management are meant to try to deal with those issues. Mm -hmm. Do you see that there's ever going to be a need to take active measures to clean up the space environment? Oh, sure. There, there probably will be. Um, and that's going to be, that could be another whole industry, because if we have 600,000 objects now, in, and we're going to have 10 times as many satellites in a few years, probably, there, hopefully, there won't be 10 times as many objects, but say there are five times. That would be 3 million objects now to deal with. That's, even for space, that's starting to get a little crowded to have 3 million things careening around uh, up there. Well, then this this question grows directly from that. Um, what what functions within uh, SSA and space traffic management do you consider inherently governmental, given the emergence of commercial markets and products in data collection, processing, and advisory services? So, what does the government need to do, and what sh what should be left to industry? Well, the the Air Force is at least at this stage the primary collector of the data. Mm -hmm. um, so I make the analogy to the National Weather Service. We provide National Weather Service data free, and yet AccuWeather and others have made multi-billion dollar businesses out of taking what started out life as a free product and commercializing it. I don't see anything logically inconsistent with that happening in space. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, so to the extent that um, activity in space, of course, is regulated, this question goes to the, the speed of license processing and um, an apparent lack of staff to handle the volume of work that they have today, much less uh, when we are trying to get 15,000 new satellites launched in the next few years. And I'm sure there would be a lot of interest from industry in knowing what commerce's plans are to make sure that they have adequate staffing and resources to, to manage the, the licensing process. Well, we have to keep going to Congress with our little tin cup um, begging for money. That, that's our strategy. Well, <laughs> per, per, there may also perhaps be some room uh, for um, performance-based regulatory processes or general licenses and moving away well, from... General licenses I tried to address before. Sure. W once something is a proven, safe, reliable product, 
there should be a moderation in the amount of paperwork, if any, that's needed for the next application of that individual thing. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, safety has to be the A number one thing. These are very expensive toys. You don't want them to have something bad happen. And particularly as you get to human participation in a larger scale, individual safety becomes even more critical. I think right now the rule of thumb that the government is using is to have a 1 in 279 chance of something untoward happening. Now we can argue should that be a higher ratio, should it be a lower ratio, but somebody at some point has got to make a decision, what is the tolerance for risk? Mm -hmm. So this is perhaps topical to that subject. Um, question is, will commerce have an in-house R&D function to support commercial space, in an in-house research and development function to support commercial space activity? Um, and I'll combine that with another one that's related, which is basically asking um, the extent to which the U.S. commercial space activity requires some form of governmental subsidy or support. Okay. Well, uh, there clearly is a role for government in supporting space, particularly the more far out research and, uh, and development side of things. Mm -hmm. um, projects like the current activities exploring what really is Pluto uh, may be a good case in point in that. There's no immediate obvious commercial use for that information but uh, I attended a great lecture on it over the weekend and learned some amazing things, and I'll just share a few to illustrate how out of the box it is. I had no idea that Pluto is 1,000 times the size of Earth. 1,000 times. And had no idea that on the North Pole of Pluto, there are eight recurring octagonal cyclones, each of which is approximately the same in diameter as the Earth. And just think about, these are kind of startling data points. I don't know yet what they mean. No one does. Also, it's largely a gaseous uh, environment under tremendous pressure because of the great pull of gravity. 20 times the, the pressure at, at sea level here. Tremendous gravitational pull, which makes it quite hard to orbit uh, around it. And then the last little data tidbit that I'll give you, uh, you've heard lately they discovered some more planets or, or more moons around Ju Jupiter. Well, it turns out some of them are going clockwise and some are going counterclockwise. How does that come about? That's a counterintuitive kind of a notion. So I don't know what to make of all those things, but just more info about Pluto, as I bet you five or ten years from now, will result in us knowing a lot more about something else that's commercializable. That's sort of the point that, that I'm trying to make. That kind of far-out thing clearly is not going to be economical for private sector to do. 
the next phase of it hopefully would be. Okay. Well, I want to ask another commercial question. This is combining a couple of them. Uh, one of uh, our audience wanted to ask you about the international trade implications uh, for U.S. efforts to dominate space commerce. And that perhaps ties in with another's question on uh, opportunities to collaborate with the European Union on privatization of space, and also uh, uh, and, uh, someone's question on um, perhaps less, perhaps dealing with um, rivals in space like Russia and China. Well, th those are three days worth of questions, but. <laughs> Anyhow, as to interaction with the other uh, entities elsewhere, there already is a well-established collaboration with the European Space Agency and with some others. There's an opportunity being created right now because the European Commission has informed the UK that they won't be able to participate in Galileo or any of the ESA projects once Brexit comes. So that creates a whole big hole for the UK, and we, we, we're probably the most logical partner uh, for them. But we've always had collaboration, and some of it, I think, is not well done. The prior administration basically vacated space launch. So along about 2010-11, we had a 0% market share in space launches. And instead, our government has entered into a series of contracts with the Russians. We're, we're paying the Russians up to $75 million a pop to give a ride for our guys going up to the space station. To me, that doesn't make a whole, that's not the right kind of cooperation. We probably funded something like 15 or 20% of the Russian space program. So international collaboration is fine, but it too needs to have some limitations to it. So then if, uh, obviously looking at the, the situation we see today, a big part of the solution to not having space launch capability is, um, uh, goes to this question. It says, record amount of investment capital is flowing to the space sector. And as a former investor, what could put American risk capital at risk of an additional investment? slightly awkwardly worded, but perhaps you get the gist. <laughs> well, I'll try to interpret it. <laughs> um, uh, the, the actual amount of risk capital, other than from the couple of very well-known, very wealthy people, is fairly limited. It's a few billion dollars a year at recent rates. We have to find a way to multiply that and multiply that very quickly because a few billion dollars a year is not going to be adequate to have very rapid achievement of some of these ancillary activities that I described. So we do need more. I think more is starting to come. The European Space Agency has literally spawned a private venture capital fund, small, it's $100 million, 
and it's just getting itself organized. So we're we undertaking to introduce them to Silicon Valley and other providers of capital to start getting some collaboration at that level. But the, the need to be more, and I think there will be, more special purpose firms, more people knowledgeable about space. But more importantly than that, the time horizon between now and when something commercial is feasible has to get shortened because venture capital funds generally have a 10-year life and maybe they can be extended a little bit under some circumstances, but they really try to realize things within three, four, five years. So you need to have some way to get where commercialization is a little closer than it is in some sectors right now. Um, that, I think, is the, the other challenge. The other big challenge I mentioned before was making it cheaper to do all these things. So these, these little CubeSats constellations, as opposed to a few gigantic ones, that's certainly thinking in the right direction. Uh, frequency of launch is another problem we have to deal with. When you have relatively few launches from a very expensive facility, you have to amortize that base cost over a very small number of launches. Doubling or tripling the amount of launches will have a very big impact on that. And also, there should be a learning curve. People in aerospace learned a long time ago, you develop a new plane, that first airplane is ridiculously expensive to build. By the time you get to number 200, much more economical to build. So repetition of uh, production of the key elements is another big factor in bringing costs down. But we got to bring the cost down to make a lot of these activities feasible. I know we're getting towards the end of our time with you. I have two more questions I'd like to run through if we can. Um, first is dealing with, uh, with spectrum. And I realize that you're not the FCC. Uh, we hope to have uh, a forum focused on the FCC in September. So we're going to deal with that also. But whenever we have any kind of discussion on space, it seems like all anyone wants to talk about is spectrum issues. And so the question goes to, what do you see the Commerce Department's role as being in ensuring that space has, the, has adequate spectrum to accomplish? You know, if we get to 15,000 satellites, everyone's going to be drinking through a very thin straw. Well, there are really two big dimensions to the spectrum question. The first one is, how much of it does government need on its own and within government, it's the main consumer of spectrum is DOD. So trying to pry loose from DOD and other agencies more bandwidth is one component. The other one then is how do you allocate it? How close together do you permit things to get to be? And those are areas that we better tread pretty carefully because you really don't want to make mistakes there. There are, as you know, some very active pending cases before FCC right now about proximity 
of, of frequency. And um, the other thing to remember is FCC is an independent agency. And, and that's not just on paper. It truly is an independent agency, even though it's governmentally uh, appointed. Our role is to provide advice to them, but we cannot in commerce through, and mostly through NTIA, so we can advise them, we can make arguments, we can try to work with them, but they will, at the end of the day, make the, excuse me, the determination. Okay. Um, and so it's good that you're having him come. My, my limited dealings with him, as you know, he's pretty new on the job, seems like a very reasonable, very grounded, very serious person. So while we may or may not agree with all of his decisions, my belief is that they'll be well considered. Thank you. So the last question here, maybe this is a good one to wrap up on. Um, uh, it says, uh, what in terms of the whole of government con uh, concerns you most in the space sector? And maybe that's just an opportunity to say we've been focusing mostly on the Commerce Department, and you've mentioned some other agencies. But what do you see as the overarching administration um, what, what are they trying to accomplish here? Well, well, simplification is the thing. Uh, DOT, which is responsible for launch and reentry regulation, has been tasked with coming up with a whole new regulatory environment by July of 2019. So that's a whole separate thing that's really quite important mm -hmm. um, that's afoot. And that's part of the same concept that, that we have w with the other aspects. Good. Well, thank you. Mr. Secretary, I can't thank you enough for gracing us uh, here at Hudson today. It's been wonderful having your time. There have been a lot of good conversations, and, and we're really appreciative of you taking the effort to come down. Well, thank you. I appreciate you folks being in school. Good afternoon. Welcome to the afternoon session. We have a, a real brain trust here with us from the Department of Commerce, and uh, we're going to go through uh, uh, a number of questions and then uh, be prepared to ask your questions from the audience. Uh, uh, first of all, my name is Joe Pelton. I've been in the space industry uh, starting uh, at uh, Intelsat, where I was head of strategic policy, and then I've had a number of academic uh, positions. Uh, I've been dean and chairman of the board of trustees of something called the International Space University. I've uh, had a space institute at George Washington University. And uh, largely, uh, I write books uh, today. I was explaining I've written my 50th book. And someone said, why so many books? And I said, I've heard once that uh, one book in 50 is a bestseller. I keep trying. So. Uh, and, and I will just say, well, on behalf of my publisher, I have a number out there. Uh, the latest one is called The New Gold Rush in Space, and that's sort of what we're talking about today. Uh, so next to me is Kevin O'Connor. He is the director of the uh, Office of Space Commerce at the U.S. Uh, Department of Commerce, and uh, he leads uh, an office uh, that uh, is an advocate uh, for space business, and uh, we've had a session this morning where we've given him a lot of good ideas of how he could help uh, space business going forward. Uh, 
we uh, have next to him uh, Jim Uckmeyer. Uh, he is the regulatory specialist. Uh, he's the special uh, senior advisor to the Office of the Secretary, and uh, he works on uh, uh, regulatory reform. And uh, he uh, is going to talk about the, sort of the latest uh, with regard to the uh, uh, regulatory initiatives uh, that have come out of the uh, uh, space uh, policy directives. Uh, next to him, we have Stephen Volz, who uh, had a distinguished re uh, career at uh, NASA and uh, with uh, uh, NOAA, and uh, he's uh, worked on a number of really exciting projects, uh, uh, ISAT and uh, Calypso and uh, many other uh, uh, projects. Uh, we have next to him uh, Ian Steff, who is the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Marketing, but that is not enough. He has two other jobs. Uh, he is uh, uh, performing the uh, function, the duties of the Assistant Secretary for Global Markets and Director General of the United States and Foreign Commerce Service. So uh, I hope you're getting triple pay for uh, all of those activities. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then finally, we have uh, Earl Comstock, who's the director of the Office of Policy and Strategic Planning at the uh, U.S. Department of Commerce. And uh, he uh, serves as the chief policy advisor to uh, Secretary Ross, and uh, I understand is advisor on planetary uh, matters, uh, <laughs> particularly Pluto. Yep. So that's sort of an inside joke for uh, any of you who uh, follow uh, Space things. Anyway, uh, I'd like to uh, start out uh, by uh, uh, asking. Uh, Got to get out my possible questions. Uh, what path forward does the commerce uh, see with regard to space debris and space traffic management, and uh, particularly uh, looking internationally to what's happening at the UN Committee? Uh, on the working group on the long-term sustainability of space and the IADC of uh, can we uh, exercise more leadership uh, at the international level uh, and uh, what really uh, can we do and should we be doing? So, so I think what we've <laughs> Simple seen... Simple question. So, thanks, Joe. <laughs> so I, I think what we've seen so far, uh, I begin week three in my role as the Director of Office of Space Commerce, but. What we've seen so far is a strong encouragement by the allies for American leadership on SSA and STM issues. Uh, I know there were discussions about this at COPUS a few weeks back. Uh, and so uh, uh, that's, that's the starting point for the conversation. There's clearly a role in leading a community that has similar values to ours as we pursue this very complex technical mission. Okay. Well, Jim, I'm going to go to you next. Uh, basically, uh, we have... Uh, uh, our good friend Scott Pace has been a, a dynamo at work, and uh, we've had uh, at <laughs> least three uh, uh, space directories, but particularly Directive 2 and 3 have uh, basically set a whole series of objectives uh, with deadlines of uh, 120 days. Uh, uh, this is not the usual Washington way of doing things. Uh, anyway, uh, can you give us an update on sort of uh, how things are going and can we really expect those 120-day objectives uh, to be met? Sure. So in Space Policy Directive 2, uh, the department was ordered by the president to create a one-stop shop, a consolidated and coordinated 
a space office um, that within the office of the secretary. And that very same day, we sent a reprogramming notice to Congress um, to try to make that happen. So that, that's pending. But uh, meanwhile, we're, we're working very hard to go ahead and get coordinated. Uh, people often wonder why commerce is getting new space for responsibilities. They don't see commerce as um, a real space agency. But at the end of the day, as, as we heard all day, uh, most of what's going up there now is commercial. It's not government objects like it used to be. Uh, so we deal with these companies on a daily basis, whether it's spectrum management or remote sensing or international trade, um, export controls is one we hear a lot about. We're touching all these companies on those issues. Uh, so we are, we've got a space team now that meets once a week, um, 20, 30 people uh, in a room that are looking at all the various issues and making sure that we are on the same page and we are coordinated because if we can't get coordinated, um, we're, we're not going to meet industry needs. And when companies come in to meet with us, rather than the, the companies walking down our, the halls of our building, which is about half a mile uh, long, Instead, uh, we, we've got a one-stop shop in the room. They can talk about all their various needs in one place. So we, we are also uh, working on remote sensing. We, we have an ANPRM that's public now in our collecting industry comment. Uh, that 60-day period closes uh, mid to late August. But you, you can submit comments now. You don't have to wait. So we, we want everybody to, to take as much time as needed. But as soon as you submit the comments, we can start to uh, review and incorporate them and we want to get a proposed rule out as soon as possible after that uh, comment period window closes uh, next month, uh, or sorry, late August. And, and you know we're going to move fast. So the sooner we can get your uh, work product, the sooner we can address it. Okay. Well, uh, just uh, going over to Steve, uh, it as just Jim just said, people don't really think of commerce as space. Uh, but uh, to do all the things that are required requires a lot of technical uh, expertise and so on. So is commerce going to get uh, enough expertise and uh, what kind of detailing uh, of people or other assembling of uh, expertise uh, is anticipated in the next, uh, uh, well, whatever, wherever it can be done uh, without uh, additional congressional uh, authorizations or uh, in other words, it takes money. Uh, I guess a large tin comp uh, is really needed to make all these things happen. So could you just uh, talk a little bit about staffing and uh, technical expertise? Probably not. But um, <laughs> I, I think the, the point, you, as James was just saying, is how there's, this is a, a new initiative that the Department of Commerce has identified themselves as the focus on. And as Kevin was saying, there's a lot of international interests I think part of it, as the, the space program within the Department of Commerce, which is NOAA and, and our Satellite Information Service, um, we are, we're a part of a large organization, a community that's been doing this for decades, been operating in space effectively, working through the issues of space situational awareness, making sure we don't bump into each other in space, traffic management. So I think there's a, there's a capability in the community and capability within NOAA to, to operate our systems. And what we're looking at with, as we look at STM and SSA on the Department of Commerce side, is to take that expertise and understanding and use that as a model sort of to help inform how the, the office needs to be staffed up. Um, I don't think there's any intention of replicating or reproducing or replacing the existing intellectual capacity that's at the, at the Air Force, at NASA, at some of the other international organizations. But as I heard one-stop shop or window shop, it's the front end 
and doing that communication in the commercial sector, that's the objective. So um, there is a significant management. It's space traffic management, not space traffic highway building. So it's managing what's there and not telling everybody how to do what they do. So there is, it, it's not so much technical that we have to add a, a bunch of full-time equivalent people to do the technical part, but we have to understand the environment, the groups, the, the players, and find the best management structure to handle that. So as you said, without funding, without authorization, we're not going to hire a bunch of people, but we are collecting the input and the community conversation about how what would be effective and what would be useful. And when I travel and see with our multilateral, multinational organizations, there's a lot of interest on what the Department of Commerce has done. There's a fair amount of skepticism about whether they, what they're going to do and whether we're going to be able to do it, but there is an awareness that is an unnecessary function to have a, a to have a framework for how we integrate these dozens or hundreds or even sometimes thousands of new satellites into the orbit construct where it used to be just a government playground. Um, so there's a lot of interest and skepticism, but um, involved players around the world, and I think they're looking for us to provide management ideas, not so much technical expertise. Okay. Uh, Ian, uh, you're sort of dealing with markets and so on, and uh, my last uh, few weeks. Uh, I was uh, at the International Space University talking to one of my colleagues who uh, used to be at Ames, who's now an employee of the government of Luxembourg, who set up a $200 million fund to get new space industry off the ground. And they've also passed a bill similar to what the U.S. has uh, to kind of encourage new space business. Other colleagues I met uh, are uh, from New Zealand, who also are trying to create new space initiatives and so on. And as we heard in discussions this morning, uh, the U.S. has a lot of regulations, and a lot of people are uh, thinking they have to go overseas and file uh, their filings uh, rather than through the FCC and the U.S. processes with overseas uh, activities. So. The real issue here is, is the U.S. falling behind in terms of space markets and ability to serve uh, space industry, and are they going to be attracted uh, by uh, these new funds and new initiatives by other countries? Look, well, thanks for the question, and I would say that uh, not only are we not falling behind, but we have demonstrated to the world and our partners that this is an area that we must maintain and grow our leadership in. Uh, we saw that firsthand, uh, you know, I just returned from Farnborough uh, with Kim Wells and the rest of the International Trade Administration uh, team, uh, and clearly uh, what was on display there was the best of the best of American technology, American technology and partnership that the rest of the world uh, needs and demands. I would say uh, the other thing that is very promising is the services that the International Trade Administration within the Department of Commerce provides to our, our growing space industry, our advocacy efforts within ITA. Right now we have $4.2 billion worth of active ongoing advocacy projects and 29 different projects. These are projects that foreign governments are inviting U.S. companies to participate in and represents a great cross-section of the activity happening there. The other area that I would reference within ITA is the Select USA program. We realize, as the Secretary mentioned just earlier, that no one country nor no one company can single-handedly reap the benefits of space, and therefore we are inviting the best of the best in the world to come here and invest in our, our space community. 
Uh, the last area that I'd mention uh, is the, the thorough analysis that we're providing in terms of what those top markets look like around the world. Clearly, the market here is huge, but we're not the only market, and we need to make sure that companies are competing on a fair and level playing field in these markets. Uh, Earl, uh, we'll just continue kind of a policy. You're sort of the chief policy advisor uh, to uh, Secretary Ross, uh, that it seems like there really are a number of challenges. Uh, we've heard a whole lot today about space debris and space debris uh, policies. Uh, when people file for uh, new systems, uh, they have to file a lot of information with the FCC about what they've done to minimize space debris and what have you. Uh, but there seems to be kind of this uh, trade-off of that. On one hand, we don't want new space debris, but we also don't want uh, over cumbersome regulation uh, that uh, stops new initiatives. Uh, uh, another issue uh, that uh, at least has occurred to me is uh, in terms of this one-stop shopping, uh, that we know what the uh, uh, FAA uh, Office of Space Commercialization and so on requires and licensing and what have you uh, and uh, other uh, things that the FCC requires uh, in terms of their frequencies and so on. But what seems to be missing when I read through the uh, policy directives uh, is the fact that there's also a need for an environmental statement and the fact that uh, there's an EPA in, in this process and it seems to me that they may be the slowest part of this uh, getting things done. Uh, so uh, just uh, some comments uh, about uh, how this all works. In other words, you've got the FCC that's an independent agency. Uh, there's EPA that doesn't seem to be men mentioned in the directive and so on. Uh, can we really put this all together and have one-stop shopping and uh, do what we need to do to minimize uh, the, the space debris. It seems like a really hard task. Uh, so. well, th thanks for the question, and that's obviously something that this administration is very focused on. Is uh, you know what you've really seen grow up over the last you know, whatever forty years is a a not well coordinated process. And to take your example of the FCC licensing, you know if you really look at the FCC statutes, there's really nothing in there about the space side as much but they were a natural uh, spot. You have a treaty that says that uh, governments, you know, flag states are supposed to exercise authorization and control. So you start looking around, and at the time when these things were going up, the only real connection, the nexus, was these communication satellites. And so the, if you really want to go back into the history of it, the FCC's office evolved this larger thing because lawyers basically came in and said, you know what, somebody has to be supervising this. It's not just about your frequency assignments. Under the treaty, we have to say that you're being supervised. So they devised basically organically a process to do this. And this is what the, this administration is really focused on, is saying how do we sort of cut through this, this process where different things have been built up over time for different reasons. Um, you know, it made a lot of sense to run this out of the FCC when essentially all you had for satellites was communications. That There was a, a real logical nexus there. But as we look more toward a lot of manned activities, we look toward a lot of other activities in space, particularly in space commerce, the question is, where do you now start to focus this? Your, your point on the EPA, one of the basic questions is, okay, uh, does the EPA have authority in space? 
Um, you know, we have laws that are written for terrestrial environmental protection. We've got ocean protection. Uh, there's not so much out there that I'm aware of that, that covers space. So from a policy perspective, that's a lot of the, what the, the role of the administration is looking at. What we are clear about, and I think what you heard from Secretary Ross earlier, is this administration is very focused on incenting companies to come here, choose us as the flag of choice. We want to make sure that we accomplish a number of objectives of not only leading in space, but making sure that we set up a process and provide the best uh, guidelines and frameworks for getting out there to make sure that we minimize the debris issue, we minimize the issues of uh, conflicting uh, trajectories, et cetera. So this is, it's, a, it's a big challenge, but I think what you have in this administration is a lot of uh, intent to get, get to the bottom of it and, and hopefully leave the situation well formulated at the end of the day. Well, you do raise an interesting point about uh, uh, regulation of, of outer space. Uh, but what people don't really, I think, realize is the fact that not only do we do have this issue of space debris, but uh, you know the various launchers we have have different uh, major uh, differences in environmental impact. And uh, you know a lot of the uh, solid fuel uh, rockets leave particulates and so on. And that people really don't recognize that uh, pollution at ground level and pollution in the stratosphere is a quite different uh, thing. Uh, I, I did a, a, a paper uh, where, uh, or a book uh, where I asked someone to do a paper on uh, this issue. Mm -hmm. And I was told, uh, yes, I'll do it. And then uh, an hour later, the person came back and said, no, I can't do that. <laughs> uh, so it's a sensitive issue, uh, let's put it that way. But uh, I really do think that, that uh, uh, it's not only orbital debris, but there, if you are going to be launching thousands of satellites, and uh, a lot of them with uh, solid fuel missiles and so on, it really could become an environmental issue as well. So anyway, uh, back to you, Steve. Uh, there has, uh, you've written a, a number of things about how we commercialize a number of things that uh, uh, have been government functions and so on. And uh, in Directive 2, there was an issue of uh, trying to uh, commercialize uh, some of the uh, current uh, meteorological services and so on, mm -hmm. uh, and so on. Uh, could you comment about uh, Directive 2 and sort of where we are in uh, that uh, aspect? Sure, sure. So to the role of, uh, so this is a very active conversation right, right. right now, the role of the public versus the private, commercial versus government-sponsored um, systems in space, and how they meet our mission needs. Um, we're just at a point within NOAA where we just are launching the, the first of the next generation of satellites that will provide the baseline weather observations for the next 15, 20 years. Um, but these were developed and designed 15, 20 years, 10, 15 years ago. So it's a long timeline for developing of satellites. But so as we got to the end of the development cycle, the design, and started launching these, we, just, we knew we had to look at a different approach. When we designed these systems of, in 2005, there was no small sat industry. There was no commercial space industry that was providing microsats or combir, you know, there were the combirds, but nothing in low Earth orbit of consequence. It's an entirely different environment now, and we realized that we have to, if we're going to fly something in 2030, it's not going to be what we flew in 2020 or 2010. So we went through a long exercise. We did an architecture study, basically, looking at the services we provide and seeing how we address those. And we opened it up entirely to 
government-owned and, and built, commercially provided services, commercial data sources that might be applicable, and even um, outsourcing just ground systems or communication sites, looked at the whole observing system and found that there are potentially strong places, avenues where the, we can outsource pieces of the observing system, not the whole system. There's, there's a reliability and a dependability function that is really the essential nature of a government service. You have to get the weather every day, and it's not something you're just going to outsource and assume and hope that somebody does a nice job. But things like we build the GOES satellite. It is a great Earth-observing satellite, but it also is a communication satellite. That's uh, half of the, the bus is about power to drive comms up and down. There's no reason, inherent reason why we can't outsource the communication side. Can we do the observing and then find a different way to have a comms satellite handle in the longer term, the bandwidth to broadcast the, the signals in a different way. Now, that would be a change in our system, and we've got to step into that you know, carefully, but that's a one place. Another place is hosted payloads where we don't have to build the satellite, we build the platform. We build the instrument, or we you know, and we buy spots on a commercial satellite, which is a comm satellite and geostationary, or maybe even something like Iridium if the instrument is small enough, where we use somebody else's investment in platforms, and we build it into our system. Those are two definite examples. And we've also been doing the last couple of years actually piloting the buying of commercial data. Radio occultation data is one particular measurement to see if a commercial sector, not just built selling data to the US government, but selling data more broadly, can sell it to us as well so we get the benefits of their multiplier, putting the cost of it out on the whole sector. Um, and that's still in the pilot stage. We've got a couple of companies that have, we've contracted with. They provided some data. And we're going through a second phase to do that. And I think that will be a piece of the architecture going forward. So we've looked in this overall of, at, through multiple approaches to getting the um, opening up our long-term measurement needs to potential commercial providers and our service needs. And I think there's viability there. It will be, as we look at probably, it will be a hybrid system in the future. It will not be government-owned. But there will be government pieces, government-only, because the reliability, the performance, accuracy, et cetera, are such that you can't, you know, you can't definitely get, go out to the public for it, to the commercial sector. But there will be large pieces that are commercialized through a long period of transition from the existing to the future state. Do you have a schedule for this of sort of like, uh, uh, does this sure. go in the next year's budget or what? So, yes. Um, uh, the commercial weather data pilot, which we started in 2017, is actually in the pipeline. And we have been funding that for a couple of years. And that will continue. Um, but we actually hope to put into the upcoming budget a request to actually go out with a hosted payload demonstration, for example. Um, another thing which we also are looking at in, is going out with an RFI within the next, that's a request for information, within the next couple of, within the next month or so, to offer a free ride to space for a commercial sector that wants to fly an Earth observing instrument. We provide the ride, we give them a platform on, it's called an Esper ring on a launch vehicle. They get, the, they get to space at no cost. We get the data. And so if an Earth-observing instrument that we want to see data like that, we're not going to invest in the R&D of a new type, but the measurement is very valuable to us. They get to get a space at our cost, but they get then the visibility of flying in, in constellation with a NOAA satellite so we can do comparative data and observations. We get the data for free for evaluation and for exploitation. And so both benefits. So, so that's an example. And that's likely to, that, as I said, we'll have an RFI out within the next uh, couple of weeks asking for interest from the commercial sector. And initially, a lot of we've heard um, feedback said that's a good idea. We have satellites we'd love to fly, but doing all the other parts, getting the launch, getting everything else, and not knowing if anybody wants it, 
is um, has been a hindrance. By putting these sort of price indicators or these interest indicators out, we expect a positive response. And that will be a launch roughly 2022. Um, so there's a bunch of individual things that we've looked at with our, as I said, our architecture study, which we call in SOSA, indicates where we should start investing in some of these exploratory questions in order to inform the next generation satellites. Kevin, let's come back to you again in the context of things that could be commercialized and what have you. Uh, um, I've uh, looked at a list of uh, companies that are basically providing uh, space situational awareness uh, services and, and what have you. And uh, uh, I came up with AGI, which is sort of the main contractor for uh, the Space Data Association. Uh, Rencon, uh, Leo Labs, Lockheed Martin, Boeing, Schaefer Corporation, Applied Defense Solutions, and my favorite, ExoAnalytics, because uh, they were a spinoff of students of the International Space University who have kind of a different model. Uh, so can you uh, explain how this is all going to come together? Because you basically have JSPOC that supposedly is the source of all knowledge, but you have all of these people now providing uh, private data, and uh, you have uh, uh, the Space Data Association, and then you have a directive uh, uh, that says basically, hey, uh, Commerce, you're really supposed to be doing this for the commercial world. How is this all going to come together, and uh, uh, is there going to be uh, this continuing opportunity for business to provide space situational awareness services. Sure, I think this is actually one of the reasons why the Commerce Department should be in charge of this. The Secretary said earlier that, that the Department of Defense currently collects most of the data, and that will be the starting point. You know, we will carefully pursue how we would be the provider of that data in an acceptable model to the private sector. That leaves lots of rooms for the companies that you've mentioned and others to come in for pilots, experiments, pick whatever word you like, to try to raise the capability in all areas for both defense and also for purely commercial reasons. Because right. actually, it seems to me, again, we sort of pretend at times that the US is the world. Uh, but I, I know that uh, Australia has put in some new capabilities. Uh, Germany has a new uh, uh, optical uh, system and what have you. Uh, can we? actually rely more on the world and, and does the U.S. have to do this all itself or can we create a global system that uh, uh, is uh, reliable and uh, gives sufficient information to the commercial uh, community? I mean, basically the Space Data Association was the industry saying, hey, we can do some of right. this stuff ourselves and uh, they had to fight with JSPOC to get a lot of the information they needed. but. Uh, uh, is the Space Data Association sort of a model of what can be done to develop more commercial uh, activities? So I, I don't know that, that that's the only model, but I think there are a number of models, and I don't see any reason why we would preclude allied participation in an architecture, if you will, that will do this over time. Right. And, and again, just the sort of background, you know, we do have the uh, new S-band system that's in the Pacific. Uh, there are rumors of maybe a new S-band system uh, in Australia uh, and, and so on. Uh, what technology is the way forward? Is it S-band technology radar or is it uh, 
uh, more optical systems or uh, a combination and uh, also more reliance on uh, well, things like exoanalytics. It just goes around and puts telescopes all over the world. I think the answer to that is yes. Uh, all we of want, above. Absolutely. We all want, of above. We want to create as many opportunities for innovation as we possibly can. Right. And I, mean, th I think that's part of the, the goal ahead. of the administration is to in setting up commerce and having us uh, be the interface for the commercial side of, of space situational awareness. You, you're going to continue to have the Department of Defense, which is going to maintain the sort of the, the catalog that they need to maintain. But the real question is, how do you create an interface where commercial companies can come in, provide this information? I mean, one of the one of the things that's out there right now is the fact that you have essentially a two-dimensional picture up in space. And so we can say that two things are headed toward each other, but I can't tell you whether they're headed on an exact collision course or whether they're going to pass each other you know, five miles or 10 miles one way or the other. And so that's one of the things that Commerce is going to be out there trying to set up is how do we ingest data and feed that back into the system and create opportunities for commercial companies? What we'd love to see is a private sector company get up there, put, it, put an asset in space that then gives you that three-dimensional picture. If there's some private company that wants to do that, then they, we would be in a situation where we could hopefully feed that data back in and all the companies that are going up there, we'd love to have them have a, a point of access where they can feed us their data, their trajectory data, and other stuff, so that we improve the basically the overall picture for everybody. And we'll always provide a basic level, but there should be a commercial market to provide enhanced stuff. You look at the insurance industry, and hopefully they're going to get involved and say, you know what, if you're providing, you know, if you take these certain steps and have access to this advanced database we'll give you a low insurance rate. So there's a number of ways we can look at how to do this, but that's one of the reasons that they've, uh, the administration has chosen to, to create a civilian side agency that's going to handle this. If I may, there's another well, go benefit ahead, to that, and maybe an uh, analogy of the Earth observation data over the years. Um, we've spent a big effort in the last 30 years to make Earth observation data from all the nations free and open. And by making and by encouraging others to contribute their data to a common database, you have a larger collection of data, which the value is not in the observations, but in the exploitation of it. So by having a civilian agency, as Earl was just saying, being the place where you can come to get this information, you don't have to negotiate with the Department of Defense, which are not good negotiators about opening up their data for obvious reasons. You, you create an opportunity where you have a bigger data set, more information, which in addition to getting more observations in, there's a lot more exploitation in that data set. Secretary Ross mentioned earlier about different ways to project collisions. So you have a different collision avoidance approach as opposed to what we might do, which is two-body, uh, two-line two analytics where they just look at collisions. But there may be much more interesting and creative ways to use a complex a mixed data set to do trajectory analysis and to do fleet analysis for somebody who wants to fly a thousand satellites. They're never, the DOD is never going to do that. We're never going to do that. By making a common working space, they can, we can provide the information set and you can create a whole new industry of of analytics, of analyzers and, and data managers who can work with those data in different ways. It's, and it just illustrates another reason why the Department of Commerce was, was selected for this, yeah. because of the fact that we have all of these entities across space. Not only do we get out there and market, work with foreign governments, we've got tremendous experience in NOAA already setting these things up, and we're hoping to use those kind of models, the, the experience from the weather systems, to say, look, we've done this before in other civilian environments. This is how we can build on that experience and, and expand on it. 
Let me change the subject of that. We've been talking about ways of promoting business and so on. Uh, but it seems to me there's several vital activities uh, that is a government function uh, that I'm not quite sure who's going to be doing what. Uh, and one of them is uh, cybersecurity and uh, what uh, can be done to protect uh, our vital uh, satellites. And, and you know, many of our business uh, activities are now vital assets. Uh, uh, you know, if uh, EchoStar and uh, uh, Intelsat and what have you went down, that would be a big problem. Uh, uh, what can or should commerce role be in terms of uh, cybersecurity? And uh, also, uh, uh, we really have looked at remote sensing and communications, but GNS services, uh, navigation and uh, timing services, are now uh, absolutely vital uh, service. Uh, uh, one of the things that people seldom realize is that if the internet went down, uh, I mean, if the uh, GNS systems, the GPS went down, that's used for synchronization of the internet. We'd be losing the internet, at least in a lot of countries and so on. So what could or should uh, your role be in terms of uh, cybersecurity and protecting of uh, vital resources? Is that something DOD does, or uh, will you have a role? Well, we already today have a role, obviously. This is a cybersecurity is a whole of government effort. Uh, Department of Homeland Security plays a key role, but commerce plays a, a major role as well. Through the National Institute of Standards and Technology, we have the cybersecurity framework. Uh, NTIA plays a big role as well in working with industry. So this is across the government. We, you know, many people don't realize this, but the Department of Commerce plays a big role in the privacy shield, which is the data transfer agreement right. uh, between the U.S. and Europe. So we have a lot of experience in that. Our role typically is to try to incent the industry to improve their standards. Um, there's others who have stronger regulatory authorities that, that could take a look at this. But the general approach has been to try to look at best practices and bring those along. Clearly, cybersecurity has got to be for, front and center for any company that's thinking of doing business in space. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we can, we can provide a lot of resources toward that. And we have experts at NIST who do this on a regular basis. But uh, you know, any company that doesn't take advantage of those resources that's out there is really asking for trouble. Um, so this is this is something the Trump administration is very focused on, and you'll, I think you'll see over the coming uh, months more activity on the cybersecurity front uh, to get out there and try to not only bring the public along but to take steps to safeguard uh, our critical industries. I would just add, uh, in terms of on the international front, uh, you know, we're very much. Uh, you know, working alongside our NIST counterparts to ensure that as those uh, foreign governments and foreign industries are moving forward and adopting new standards, that they mirror the NIST framework and other you know good best practices that we've developed, so people are not operating on you know 30 or 40 different um, you know sets of standards. And Privacy Shield goes right to that as well. And and I would add to from the perspective of somebody works working in space regularly now and working. On a, on a real-time operational basis with international and commercial partners, we are keenly aware of the need to uh, uh, maintain the integrity of the data all the way from observation to you to ingestion into the data systems and operations. So um, what NOAA having its own space agency within the Department of Commerce 
can provide an, a strong proof by example, a demonstration space for an example. It's not the only path because a government solution is not going to be mimicked by the industrial or commercial sector, but it shows where we, where we have issues and we resolve them and overcome them. It shows a demonstration of an approach to deal with a hybridized system with multiple different contributions to it and maintain a high security process at the same time. Well, you know, a lot of people, uh, we were discussing this morning the idea uh, that uh, people uh, go out and get a license for a new project and then don't realize, hey, there are obligations that uh, come with, with this. I'm wondering to what extent there should be more uh, effort to uh, bring along new companies to realize things that they need to be doing, not only in terms of filing and so on, but things like cybersecurity. Uh, I was on a, a panel that went to Japan and it looked at that none of the Japanese governmental satellites at that time, and this is a long time ago, had any real security against uh, fraudulent uh, commands to their satellites and so on. And I, I'm sure that a lot of people here say, gee, all we have to do is get these satellites up and uh, get them operational and then then it's gravy from then, but there are some responsibilities, and uh, I, I am wondering to what extent does industry fully realize the things like, hey, we need some cybersecurity on our satellites and make sure that there's no fraudulent commands and, and so on. Uh, is that something that you've thought about or something that we should be worried about? Uh, um, I'll speak first from the satellite side. Um, uh, we've been operating in space for 50 years, and it's not easy. And there are things you do to make sure your systems are secure. But I would not insist that that approach be used by a commercial sector that wants to do it as well. Um, they should go in with eyes wide open. So what we can communicate is the risks, tolerance that we have, and the reasons we made decisions we made, and not indicate that you should do it the same way. I might put rad hard computer parts on my, compute, my system so they're radiation insensitive to solar storms, but that makes a big, fat, heavy, power-hungry satellite. You want one that's small and, and agile and you can launch in, in a year instead of 10? Go ahead, but for a solar storm, this is the risk that you're taking on. So the decision on uh, accepting risk is the decision the commercial sector has to make on their own, but they should make it with eyes wide open with information. And that's what we can provide, is the, the sort of a risk tolerance approach or a risk assessment that can then in help inform the commercial sector. But I wouldn't tell them what to do. Right. I tell them what, the, what might happen if they do it a different way. But that's up to them to decide how to apply their risk. Well, Steve, I'll, I'll throw sort of a thing, since you raised the solar storm issue. Uh, you know, there are <coughs> data now from the MMS satellite and the uh, uh, swarm satellite of the ESA that our magnetic fields are uh, changing and our natural protective uh, system against uh, major solar storms may be going down over the next 50 years and so on. And this could uh, wipe out our That's power That's the Department system. of Interior's problem. That's not my problem. Right. But, 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 but. <laughs> I don't do the Earth magnetic field. This is your U.S. government work. Okay. Uh, that, but, but seriously, uh, this is a issue that's starting to be uh, seriously looked at. I know uh, between NASA and DOD and Homeland Security and so on. Uh, I do think that this might be one of the things that uh, commerce really needs to be aware of, that uh, uh, if we really uh, are looking at a situation where uh, solar storms might become a bigger problem of what uh, we're doing to protect uh, uh, vital U.S. Uh, resources, but uh, but also 
uh, again, to alert industry mm -hmm. that this might be something that they need to uh, be more aware of. So it's, it's if you will, a kind of a information uh, uh, thing, but, just, just as right. you were talking about, uh, uh, giving them, here's our experience, here are the issues you should be worried about, and here's some of the things you, sh you should worry about going right. forward. You, you, mentioned, uh, you mentioned MMS, which is a NASA satellite right. in its right. form, which is an right. ESA satellite. Right. So research satellites have been sort of in the forefront of space weather observations right. for the past decades. NOAA is just recently, within the last 10 years, started forecasting, well, 2005, right. I believe, forecasting space weather. And just within the past five years, actually launching, other than in deep space, some of our own space right. weather observations. Right. So we do see, and the, the, this is an all-government approach, that there is a need for a sustained government observation from, of space weather. Right. But there's also a need to improve modeling and understanding, which is more complex, which is NSF and NASA and others. And um, then what to do with those forecasts and warnings, the impact assessment, right. which is what does to the, inter, you know, to the energy structure system and others. So there, it is well understood whether the magnetic field of the Earth is changing over time is something we can observe, but not what we can do about it. But there is a, a clear consensus, I think, across the government and across the community that we need to be aware of and uh, better forecasting space weather events for their impact on the Earth. Right. And, and I don't know whether everyone knows you can go to NOAA website and there is a dashboard that shows in real time. Space Weather uh, Prediction space Center weather is a NOAA weather well, forecasting office for space weather. Yeah. That just, I mean, this highlights, I think, part of the reason why this administration is so focused on setting up a better system for space, because before it's always been kind of a piecemeal. haphazard, piecemeal approach, and as you get a lot of commercial companies in particular getting up there, a lot more countries that are getting involved, uh, there is a need for greater systems. <clears throat> so you start with best practices, and you see how that works. If that's not working, you know, my advice to the industry is, again, um, it, it, part of what will happen as a function of your level of responsibility. If you get irresponsible actors up there, uh, then that provides a greater incentive for governments to step in and, and regulate uh, more to control that kind of behavior. We would certainly encourage folks to continue to work together, do the best practices so we can keep regulation at a minimum. Uh, but it's precisely for those reasons. If we discover that uh, we're, we're creating greater risks in space because people are not if market forces really aren't aligned properly to give people the right incentive, then uh, then you do have a conversation within government about what do we need to do to protect that. But what we're trying to do is get the systems in place where we can look and build on what's already been done, try to provide that cohesiveness, and then you can have a rational conversation about what, if anything, is, is needed above and beyond that. Okay. And, and just want to follow ahead, up on that. Ahead. I didn't want to give the impression that anybody can fly whatever they want, whatever risk posture they want to take. There are there's a common field up there. And if you right. fly a battery that's going to explode, it affects everybody else if it explodes. So there are certain standards of, of behavior that we would expect of the commercial, everybody when that we've agreed to as a nation, as part of the community of nations, that we should apply. But put the standard at the right level about damage to others, not risk in your own mission if you want to take that. Uh, a new thing that's uh, going to be happening, I think, uh, soon uh, is uh, space Planes are going to be flying suborbital. Uh, Richard Bigelow uh, seems to think that he's going to have private uh, space stations and so on. How is the world going to change in the next few years, and what role could commerce uh, should be playing uh, with regard to uh, the safety and uh, the operation of uh, uh, private uh, space plane uh, flights and uh, even uh, uh, private uh, space stations? Uh, I'll give that to you, Kevin. 
so I think that's uh, we've done some work in my prior life. We did some work with the high altitude platforms, right. and that's uh, as as the lawyers in the room know, that's a, a nebulous space right. uh, between the space and air communities. Obviously, as those capabilities are growing, more capabilities coming to market. Those are issues that are going to have to be worked by by both commerce, obviously, and at some level, FAA transportation. Right, but I'm talking about uh, well. In other words, we have this uh, area uh, I call protospace, sort of above uh, 20 kilometers up to 160 kilometers, where you have all of these things. High altitude platforms are stable. Uh, the possibility of not only um, these uh, suborbital flights for space tourism, but actually flights to and from places uh, up to 80 kilometers and so on. And when you're mixing together something flying, uh, at uh, let's say Mach 6, Mach 7, with something that's uh, stable, uh, with no one in charge, uh, no FAA uh, right. in charge. Uh, I think, I mean, go, go ahead. Yeah, there, there's many areas where you know it's the Wild West, right? And there are no rules. And as the secretary keeps saying, regulation doesn't always have to be bad. I mean, it's kind of the right. reg reform deregulation guy. I mean, that's kind of the posture I take is. How do, we, how do we cut red tape, uh, but also how do we regulate in a way that enables? I mean, we have companies coming to us saying, I'm going to put a camera on my device even though I don't need to use it to look at the earth, and you know, I'm not regulated by the FCC, and I'm not owned by the launch vehicle that took me up here, so commerce is the only place that I can go to, to be regulated, to get that government stamp of approval to, to take out and, and raise money and, and have a sense of certainty that the United States has my back if something goes wrong. Uh, you're, you're completely right. The, the types of activities in space are going to change drastically exactly. in the next decade, and, and we've got to find a way to implement best practices and standards and, and hope that an insurance market will, will come around that will help protect companies, uh, but also you know, regulate in a way that's not adding another barrier to new activity. Well, I think the key point here is that uh, we have never had a definition of where does outer space right. start. Uh, but for years and years, we had commercial space and then, uh, I mean, uh, commercial air traffic and then military traffic, and we had outer space, and nobody had any particular use for what I call protospace or subspace or what have you. And now we have all of these uh, things of high-altitude platforms, uh, a hypersonic flight. Uh, there's the idea of even robotic freighters that would fly above commercial space and uh, uh, even deep uh, dark sky stations and so on. And it's the whole Wild West. And it seems to me uh, that uh, industry and governments may have a lot to lose unless we can get something going. Uh, that's, but I, you know, to the, to the point, I think that's exactly why this administration is focused on this is because you, you need to put the, the structures in place. And the reality is, yes, if um, commercial flights between continents start occurring in that space, there's going to be a logical discussion to expand the FAA's jurisdiction right. and the European air traffic control system. I mean, that, that is a process that can be handled. Um, I think the question is nobody knows exactly what that's going to look like. Are we going to tolerate sonic booms or, or, you know, if they manage to hush them down. So, you know, you can sort of speculate about these things. The reality is there are government structures there, and things will, will step up and fill the void. 
what this administration is focused on is doing that in a controlled fashion as opposed to just sort of letting it happen willy-nilly. So I think there is a lot of focus on this. There's a lot of excitement about it. And people believe that, to uh, James's point, you know, you may need some basic regulations mm -hmm. to align the market incentives in the proper way uh, and make sure that people don't get out there and decide, hey, I'm just going to pass off my risk on to all of the other players up there. Um, so, so, you know, we're going to put things in place. But I do think while things are going to develop quickly, uh, one, one thing we always tend to do is, is assume that things are going to happen much faster than they actually do. So when you say, what's going to change in the next five years, I would say nothing that we don't see right now. Uh, if you look 10 years out, yes, there will be things that we haven't been discussing as regularly, but probably somebody here in this room has thought of them. So, you know, it's, it's getting that process in place, and that's really what the government is, is focused on right now. Okay. Well, a new business opportunity, of course, uh, the space industry. Uh, how much do they get involved? Uh, are you involved with them in discussing some of these new risks that are coming along and whether they can help uh, uh, do that? And, and the satellite industry, the space industry, played a very good role in terms of telling uh, people, these are things you better do if you want to get a good rate from us. So uh, uh, any comments about working with the space uh, insurance, launch insurance, uh, or other space uh, uh, insurance people. Go, go ahead. Yeah, I would, yeah. I mean, on the space industry, I will just say that, uh, you know, uh, there are hundreds of new entrants, you know, coming into the, the space industry, you know, each and every month. Uh, you know, part of that may be because there's so much excitement, uh, you know, in the industry right now uh, regarding the, the bold visions that have been outlined by the secretary and, and others. But I will say that uh, you know these these hundreds of new entrants uh, that's not going to be a phenomenon that disappears. And I'm talking not just launch services or satellite manufacturers, but the materials providers, the microelectronics guys that uh, you know are currently supplying you know perhaps the automotive industry, but see a new market here in the space industry. People like you know some of my former colleagues in Indianapolis that used to supply to the motorsports industry. You know, are now supplying to SpaceX. You know that that is a fundamental change that uh, you know will ensure that we maintain and grow U.S. market share in the space industry uh, to come. Uh, you know, and I think uh, you know in terms of the the International Trade Administration's part in this, it's you know helping grow those those potential markets and ensure those new entrants are having the conversations with those potential customers wherever they may be, uh, whether they're in the U.S. or elsewhere. You know, those conversations are happening. Uh, real time, the engagement uh, you know has never been uh, at the level that I have seen it within the last you know two years. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that the secretary has asked me to focus on intently in, in the office of space commerce. The extent to which we can robustly engage industry in an organized and disciplined way uh, will be helpful to us in a couple of ways. One is that it'll help the government have early notice that people are coming forward with some of the ideas like the ones you just just spoke about. Second, they can notify us about either advocacy or regulatory concerns they have that uh, we can actually be helpful with proactively. Okay. Uh, let's go back to space traffic management. Uh, I have uh, been involved the last two years with some of the meetings that have been organized between the, the International Civil Aviation Organization and the uh, Office of Outer Space Affairs and uh, copious uh, people discussing about what can be done, uh, how can we move from a Wild West to some sort of structure and what have you. 
and those discussions have been interesting, but they have not really uh, gelled in, in any way. Uh, what do you think can be done in terms of international space traffic management uh, issues and, uh, and, or in the U.S. Uh, environment as well? Can, can we give people a feeling that something better is going to happen in terms of space traffic management going forward? I could start. Go, go ahead. The first thing we have to do is come up with a plan here in the U.S., um, get, get our heads together and, and figure out working with industry uh, and industry wants this. I mean, as people are launching billion-dollar satellites, they don't want to run the risk of somebody else, um, you know, inadvertently or carelessly uh, allowing their object to, to collide. So industry wants this. We've got to set some norms and best practices uh, and then expect the rest of the world to come up to our standard. And there has to be some sort of, of legal remedy or enforcement if, um, you know, if that, that doesn't happen. And Earl can probably elaborate a little more. He's been our of our visionary on some of this, and it, it is new territory. Uh, but but if we if we don't do it here first, we can't then coordinate with the rest of the world. And and we want to you know we want to set the standard first before somebody else does. Yeah, Earl. I, think, I think James you know basically outlined that perfectly. It's if you start at the international level, we'll get nowhere. So the United States really needs to take advantage of the fact that we have a large commercial space industry already developing. Uh, we have experience working through other international agreements, but it really, it, it's a practice of practice what you preach. So we'll, we'll get out there, we'll try to work with our industry, come up with best practices, and then extend that uh, to our allies and, and other folks that want to work on this. Right. However, there is within uh, Copius a working group on the long-term sustainability of space, and one of the issues that they are addressing is indeed uh, uh, debris and uh, space traffic management. And my understanding is that there have been a lot of very useful discussions and a lot of areas of, of, of agreement, but there is one uh, key space player who every time there's uh, close to agreement says, no, no, that can't work, and no, it has to be something different. Uh, uh, I, I think people on the panel here knows the name of that country. <laughs> but uh, a controversial country uh, at, at times. Uh, but, but anyway, uh, do you think that process can be helpful, or do you think it really does be the U.S. has to kind of uh, work out rules of the road and then work with uh, uh, allies to implement this and then uh, sort of create soft law, so you so-called transparency and confidence building measures uh, that approach uh, or somewhere in between? Well, you know, again, I think a lot of people like to think of something as new and novel. Right. There's relatively little on Earth that's new and novel. Um, probably your best bet is to look at what happened in the maritime world. Um, you know, we've been down this road before in this novel new environment. And I think what you'll see in space is many of the same things that you see developed in the maritime world on, on Earth. And, uh, you know, I just observed there we have a law of the sea, which the U.S. was the primary driver behind. Interestingly enough, we're not a signatory to that. Um, but the point is, we set the norms. And I think that's a process that I would say was very successful. It's one that the U.S. has done in numerous other fora, aviation, not, not the least of which. So you know, yet to be decided whether it's a, it's a global agreement or it's a group of leading countries that set that up. 
Um, but I think the process is much the same. You have to get out there, build the experience, uh, look to what the foundations that have worked in the past. And these issues of liability and, and insurance really drive a lot of these things. So I think we've, we've got models we can work with. They'll have to be tweaked to work with space. Um, but it's all there. So it's, it's get out there and lead and then hopefully bring the rest of our allies along. Earl's a big Thanks. fish policy guy. He likes to take everything back to the sea. <laughs> it all comes back to the ocean. Even, yeah. our, even our satellites okay. end up there usually. I have just uh, one more question, so I'm just going to uh, suggest to the audience you might be thinking about what your questions to the panel might be. Uh, so uh, one of the things that's come up uh, is the fact that uh, people in space uh, spend lots of money on research. Uh, NASA spends a lot of money on research and, and so on. And so the question is, will you have a research program? Uh, I think that uh, the secretary mentioned uh, that there would be something like a uh, center of excellence uh, that might be set up and what have you. Uh, that would be uh, with uh, commerce support or what have you. So uh, what is the research agenda and uh, what can we expect out of commerce going forward? I will just say that on the, the research front on R&D, uh, you know, Earl mentioned NIST uh, beforehand and the tremendous role that NIST plays in funding some of that basic research. Uh, uh, that was so prevalent uh, in my former industry, the semiconductor industry, right. regarding, I mean, we mentioned RAD hard. I mean, a lot of these um, standards that were developed by NIST enabled future progressions of microelectronics that are now into space. So certainly there are key sectors that we're already funding uh, in conjunction with the university community. Uh, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, where the R&D needs uh, for this industry are determined and what projection, uh, you know, we see, you know, that has to be an industry-led discussion. You know, the, um, if this is to be successful, we need to know exactly, you know, where is that industry roadmap, where is it heading on the international front domestically, and then you start thinking, you know, where do those R&D assets at a whole-of-government level, where do they reside, and who can best you know, interact with the industry and the university community to get that done. That's just my, uh, you know, uh, uh, my, my personal, you know, view on what, where the R&D uh, budgets are heading. And uh, I think there's huge opportunity, but the best R&D programs that I've seen uh, are those that are industry-led uh, with industry participants uh, and, uh, and then the government and academia uh, following uh, behind. And the space policy directives also speak to that. So, I mean, while we're all up here on the commerce panel, the reality is commerce on, on R&D, NIST will continue to play a role in foundational research, as will other elements of commerce. But the real work on that is going to be in places like NASA um, and, and other departments. So again, this is a whole of government effort. And we're a part of that. And, and we're focused on the space commerce part. But people shouldn't lose sight of the fact that there is a, a tremendous amount of other government entities that do a lot of leading work in the space field and will continue to do so. And again, uh, going back to the Secretary's uh, remarks, the whole idea of uh, drawing resources uh, from Department of uh, Transportation, NASA, and what have you to accomplish uh, your goals. And uh, while you still have your tin cup out there, I think that may be the only way to get all the expertise you, you need Yep. Uh, to move ahead uh, quickly. So, go ahead. Yes, please. You. <laughs> uh, two questions. Uh, 
Number one, um, I'm sorry. Could you could you say yes. who you're with? William Lawrence, uh, George Washington University. Why don't you stand up so we can yeah. hear you? Thanks. Uh, William Lawrence, George Washington University, and I was in the science office at State for about five years and worked closely with the space office. Um, two questions. Many of the comments in both panels raise the question of space insurance, uh, and it relates to all the risk. So I was wondering if someone in the panel could talk about Commerce's thoughts on the facilitation and development of space insurance or whether that's even part of the conversation in terms of planning and risk and this number one out of about 279 what was a chance of accident and you know what you're thinking in terms of uh, space insurance um, second question is I know from my time the State Department um, in charge of some pretty large programs um, is that the US wins in science and technology R&D when it's leading and cooperating rather than leading and flying solo. And this relates back to what Earl said a minute ago. So I just wonder what your thoughts were uh, in terms of all the international partners with, that would like to work with the U.S., you know, how this will evolve into uh, working with a lot of friendly countries' policy rather than just a U.S.-driven policy. I'm just going to say, starting with insurance, uh, I mean, that's something we're, we're just starting to look at, so we certainly have not figured it out. Uh, but what, what makes commerce such a great place to come up with, you know, long-term policy in space is that we, we're a very data-driven agency. I mean, our, our core function is to collect as much data as we can to provide information to the private sector and stakeholders so that they can adjust and, um, you know, reconfigure raw data in various applications that industry is, is best designed to come up with. So, we've, you know, we've got the Bureau of Industry and Analysis. We've got a lot of economists that are looking at, you know, various different economic indicators. And I think all of that will play a part in, in this research. If you have any other ideas for us, come, please come in. And tell can, us. I, can I say one other thing on that? You know, historically, I've seen people propose things for commercialization to the government. And government people, well-intended, have said, oh, that could never be commercialized. Come on. And so space finance, space insurance re represent very important surrogate sources of risk that are neither the government nor the company per se. And so they're important indicators for us. A absolutely. And we just add to that, you know, in, in our particular case, you've got Secretary Ross who, with his business background, is very familiar with the insurance industries right. and the financing industry. So now is a, an opportune time for people who want to come forward and talk about both financing space projects and, and looking at insurance models for this. We're very open to that and very, very interested in hearing further about that. Yeah. And on the second question, the, um, I think the, the sort of tease off the first one is that uh, we're an information-based agency or department. We have NIST, we have NOAA, we have other elements within the, the department who are very focused on collecting data and sharing information. And we do that on a technical basis in, t in many multilateral, multinational organizations where we define standards for interoperation. We define standards for observations and for data standards, et cetera, which allows us then to leverage the investments around the world by getting them to follow our lead. Back to your point, demonstrate competence before insisting on compliance. So that way, if we can do that, then we can lead by example. And that's really the way that we can leverage those multilateral, multinational organizations. The administration, you know, has an America First mandate, but not only. It's, it's not alone. It's America First, <laughs> but not alone. And, uh, you know, if there's going to be a market to have long-term economic growth, it's got to be people branching out and not just riding the, the piggyback of the big government contract. I mean, we've got to find ways to, to make money and have new business ideas, um, new voices in the conversation, not just the same insulated space community. And uh, that, that's going to take 
you know, all the different markets around the world uh, talking together on this. And then the secretary, every time he travels, you know, he says, oh, what space meetings can we get in there? So uh, it's definitely something we're working on. I think just to be clear, I mean, we're, as we're very open to trying to work with other people. I think that the key is that if you spend, you know, you need to you need to get out there and get the job done. And if people just sit around and talk, that's that's not going to get us very far. So it's it's a mix. We're, but we're we're open to the cooperation. We'd love to have people follow. We'd love to have companies around the world who want to come here and make the United States their flag of choice. So. We're, we're looking at that international cooperation side, but you know, back to the point. It, we, we need to demonstrate our competence. If we do that, then hopefully others will follow. Uh, just to add one point, I just got back from uh, a session of the International Space University. I'm on the executive board of the International Association for the Advancement of Space Safety, and there's at least some talk of a joint venture between the International Space University and the IAAAS to create a space uh, safety institute in the United States, and it would be in cooperation with the uh, space uh, insurance uh, industry and so on. So it's just an idea, but we've at least uh, thought about uh, a number of aspects of what it would entail and raising some money to actually ha make it happen. Anyway, uh, next question, please. Hi, uh, I'm Ryan Fedesiuk. I interned for the Aerospace Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. So I kind of come at this from more of a security and deterrence perspective. So I'm particularly worried as we develop this space industry for the United States that our adversaries will see this and perhaps try to leverage U.S. reliance on space um, and per perhaps you know target satellites. So what ways is the Commerce Department trying to deter those kind of attacks by cooperating maybe with the DOD? Are we like cooperating with other countries, not just our allies, but maybe adversaries? And in particular, I'm wondering um, if there's been any development in lifting the moratorium on cooperation with China on that front. Who wants to start with that one? <laughs> well, uh, a couple of things. One is the moratorium on cooperation with China is, is a congressional matter, so you'd, you'd have to look at that. Uh, Obviously, the administration is looking writ large at what is happening in, in space. And um, I think all of us enjoyed a, a period where it was, it was essentially set aside for peaceful purposes. Clearly, some of, of the other countries in the world have chosen that that's no longer a route. So the United States has no choice but to respond. And uh, that's why you've seen a real focus in the administration on space policy directives. We've got a national space strategy now. And you know the, the clear and unequivocal message across the world is we are going to defend our assets in space. And anybody that thinks that they can take advantage of that uh, will probably be sadly mistaken. Um, that being said, this is why there's a focus on commercial space as well, because we are interested in seeing it continue to be an area for enterprise and cooperation uh, across the globe. So while we'll maintain our, our space dominance, and we intend to continue to do that, we're also going to look at how do we facilitate getting uh, peaceful uses of space expanded and become a, another global marketplace. Earl, uh, you know, we think so much of an attack as a physical attack. Uh, but to me, the biggest threat is cyber uh, uh, assaults and so on. And it seems to me one of the problems we have is that uh, 
uh, is a cyber attack a, a actual attack and uh, how do we respond to cyber attacks? So could you just comment a little bit about uh, uh, that uh, problem that we have of uh, is a cyber attack really a, uh, an attack and uh, uh, a declaration of war or what have you? Uh, you know, again, I, I think folks who are interested in that can, can look at the, at the national policies that are coming out, the president's directives on those. But uh, you know, quite clearly, the United States is uh, increasingly treating something in a, a threat in cyberspace as no different from a threat in physical space. Um, and you know, we we would uh, just warn all all parties that they they uh, tangle with us at their risk. I mean, it's right. it's definitely something that is being very focused on by this administration. One one and, point on this, I think, is important. Is you know protecting national security, the, the answer to that is not, oh, let's try to stifle the, you know, supreme innovation of industry. Um, if, if we don't help businesses succeed here, they're going to go somewhere else, and then they're not subject to our legal regimes. We, we lose control, and, uh, you know, then we're subject to greater risk of attack. So we've got to find ways to, to help companies succeed and get the license approvals here, um, you know, while also protecting national security in the process. And one other point from, from a point of view of somebody from the satellite side, um, resiliency is, is clearly a, a design feature that is highly prized in our new systems as we look to the future. DOD is looking for disaggregation, they call it, where they break up big satellites into multiple little ones. They design them that way. They don't break them up. Um, and, and as we look at our next architectures as well, having a, we call it graceful degradation of loss of an asset. So if you lose a satellite, you don't lose your system. And the commercial sector's got the same problem. They have to provide a service. They don't want to come down just because they have a single point failure takes down their whole service. They lose their customer base. We lose a lot more, but resiliency into the design uh, leads, is, is enhanced by more collaboration and participation. And so even those bad actors who want to take down our system take down their own at the same time. Um, and so that's, that's a feature in all of the system designs we're doing, and not just satellites, ground systems, IT, et cetera, being resilient to attacks um, or to... Uh, or failures of any kind. Uh, identify yourself and place this. Yeah. Uh, Jennifer Warren, Lockheed Martin. So I have a less visionary question. Um, okay. A little more practical, if I might. So this, this is a great representation of visual of what the Secretary means when he says one-stop shopping. I'm seeing you all up here. Can you talk a little bit about how a new applicant comes in the front door and then what Kevin, you, you, you know, you do, I mean, you help us decide and how to reach out to Ian or, or whether we need to talk to um, Biz or can you kind of talk through that process a little bit? So I'll talk you through our initial thoughts on it. And we spoke to the secretary last week about this and I, I described four components. Uh, you've heard some of them already this afternoon. The first part is advocacy or encouraging a, a, a fruitful, productive business environment. And that's already been talking about, by, talk, spoke about by Ian and Steve in terms of advocacy, things done both around the world, but also done within the U.S. government. And those are very, very different things. The, the second is removing burdensome regulations or modernizing regulations. Again, it was said earlier, not all regulation is bad. Uh, commerce thrives not in chaos, but it thrives where there's at least a modicum of, of, of regulation. I think the real challenge there is we have to find a way, the Secretary said this, we do have to find a way to keep regulations as close as possible to rapidly changing business models and technology. 
It's very hard. One of the things I'm doing already is I'm looking for even other parallels in other industries where they've been able to keep the regulatory environment up to pace. Uh, third, I've mentioned this already for the office, is that we need a very robust industry engagement, but one that's disciplined. You know, the extent to which uh, we could meet eight hours a day for the next six years and we wouldn't meet half the companies that were involved. How will we process information coming in? What are the issues that companies really want us to look at to deal with effectively? But secondly, what kinds of high-quality information are we going to put back out? When Steve talked about the space weather information before, that's the kind of unique government data that is potentially of value to commercial companies that are going to make decisions about how they protect their satellites. And so what other kinds of information, some of it may relate to competitiveness, you know, a whole range of things that are out there. Uh, the last part that I'm, I'm thinking of for the office is that we need to improve the narratives on how space affects life on Earth. Uh, I see a lot of data. I've got seen a whole set of charts so far. How can we describe for Congress, for other regulators, for regular people, the impact that space has on Earth? Uh, and that's as much sort of a color commentary, I'll use a baseball term, you know, sort of the, the color commentary person in the booth as much as the person that has all the statistics. How do we improve that knowledge? How does a licensee come in? Obviously, we're, we have to develop the process. Earl talked about trying to create a, a structure by which somebody would come in and say, we want to do this. Uh, again, I said earlier that we need to anticipate better the kinds of folks that are going to come forward so that the process is in place when they arrive, not the day they show up and say, gee, I need to get a license. How can you help? But we've already thought about that. Okay, next. Yes, please. I'm Bob Hershey. I'm a consultant. Uh, what is being done for uh, private entities who want to come in and do a joint project and uh, have meetings online and put up their own funding and get an economic consensus and get agreement? On what kind of project? Any kind involving space that they might want to put up a satellite or buy rights in some satellites, data, or anything. Well, I, I think the first thing we're doing, and the, the Space Council has been a great resource just for, for coordinating all the various offices around the government. I mean, it, it truly is a whole-of-government approach if, if we're going to do something special here. Um, so as, as Kevin said, we're, we're welcoming people to come in and talk about their idea, their, their partnership, uh, what, what's it going to look like. I mean, is this, is this a research focus or servicing focused? And then, uh, you know, connecting them with, with the right office to be able to uh, bid somewhere or connect with uh, the appropriate lenders, apply for grants. Um, you know, just within the last couple months, uh, the department's Economic Development Agency and Minority Business Development Administration have both issued announcements. Um, you know, for for grant applicants to come in and, and seek some some matching grant opportunities that are very innovative and kind of adhere to our our space vision. So th those are just a few examples, but um, it, it's hard for us to to be able to um, you know, read the minds of industry. So as Kevin says, if we're being very forward-looking, we've just got to be able to talk to you. And I just you know, add to that, I think really for the space industry, you're in a unique position. You have everybody from the president on down who is focused on this issue. You know, Vice President Pence has been a tremendous leader on this, and he's got the full backing of the president. I mean, that's just not something you've seen 
in prior administrations. So you really have an opportunity here to help us build out something quite unique. And uh, you know, it's, it's the right point in time. You've got the right people in place. And as James mentioned, the Space Council has just performed this tremendous coordinating effort across the government. Um, so you know, while we're fortunate to all be in commerce, and, and the goal here is to try to give you a focal point for space commerce, space writ large is just playing a much bigger role. And we're going to get out there, and we're going to get people back to the moon, head to Mars. I mean, th th this is going to trickle down across the entire economy. Right. So uh, space is back, and it's, it's playing a bigger and bigger role. And the great thing is you have an administration that's fully behind it. I just want to echo uh, that as well. And there's going back to your question as well. There's no wrong door into this right. administration. I mean, not only are we working together, uh, but we generally like one another as well. And uh, regardless uh, of where you enter this administration space, you're going to get an answer. You're going to get to someone that can help you achieve the the initiative that um, uh, you're looking to achieve. I'm also going back to the question from GW on the, the international collaboration. So I had mentioned that I just returned from Farnborough with uh, Kim Wells, who uh, leads our aerospace team in ITA. Many of you know her. Um, while there, uh, we had the distinct uh, honor of accompanying uh, Colonel Al Warden uh, to present a flag that flew on one of the Apollo missions to the Royal Air Force uh, in celebration of the 100th uh, anniversary. If that didn't tell you everything that you need to know, giving one of those treasures to a great ally like the UK in terms of you know, where are we heading over the next 100 years or the next 50 years of, um, you know, as we celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Apollo missions, that, that tells you everything you need to know about where we're heading. But again, we'll lead that alongside you know, those that want to, uh, to come uh, with us. And I also wanted to thank you know, GW for everything that you've uh, done. Uh, I had the distinct pleasure of uh, uh, working with the professor uh, pace at that time, and uh, I'll tell you, I'll never forget the time. I mean, first week in the class, you had to determine how much energy uh, you needed to get, uh, you know, into orbit. I said, oh, "Gosh, I thought I signed up for a policy class." In essence, uh, you can't do policy if you can't figure out uh, <laughs> some of those tough questions. Uh, and so, I just I wanted to do a shout out there uh, and Logsdon and everyone else that has contributed. Next question, please. Good afternoon. My name is Todd Wiggins. My website's called Meet Me DC. My quick question is, as far as long-term cooperation is concerned, as you said, international uh, collaboration, right now it's hard for me to really see that working out if we can't work out a deal with China in the South China Sea as far as the expansion of the militarization aspect and drawing that analogy into space. So it seems like something's going to have to change as far as human nature is concerned between now and then because we have a tendency to be competitive and then adversarial towards each other. So is that going to it fix itself in 50 years or so? <laughs> well, they're thinking about it. <laughs> My own feeling is Russia may be more of an issue than China. Yeah, so the uh, there are always going to be adversaries, but there are, there are competitive, uh, there's competitive collaboration as well. Everybody wants to do well and do better than, you know, like we compete with Europe all the time, but it's in a healthy spirit of competition. This, particularly the South China Sea, we, we work with, NOAA works with China, the Chinese Med Agency, on a regular basis. Collaboration, I'm, I'm a member of the CGMS, which is a coordinating group of meteorological satellites. It's been around for 45 years. It has about 40 nations in it. And, and you're sitting around the table with Russia, China, India, US, Europe, 
and we're calmly, easily talking about how we coordinate our, our meteorological satellites around the globe. So even though the nations may be competing or arguing or fighting uh, figuratively or actively in different places, there is a certain there are, there are areas of common interest. Not cluttering the orbit of the uh, the low Earth orbit is a common interest, notwithstanding the Chinese demonstration. You know, collaborating on science, uh, on observation techniques, and interoperability of data; those are common interests that benefits everybody. So we can have competition or conflict, you know, conflict at the same time we have collaboration. And what happens, I believe, over time is the benefits of collaboration exceed the benefits of co competition. And you end up with getting more people engaged. We're now partnering with ISRO, Indian Space Agency, when they've been very insular for the past 30 years. And now they're going to be operating one of their satellites from one of our ground stations because they see the benefit of getting, of getting being a part of a coordinated group, which is sharing data for mutual benefit. So there, it's going to happen. We're not going to be less we're going to be conflicting each other. We're going to be fighting for the rest of our you know, species. But that doesn't mean we can't still benefit from collaboration as well. And I see that happening in a multinational organization. It really does come down to having a common interest. I mean, if you think about one of the first joint efforts we had with uh, the Soviets was actually on search and rescue. So SARSAT still alive. Still put the SARSAT right. system up. Right. They had a common interest. Right. We had a common interest. So we, we were able to cross mm -hmm. that divide. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, you're, you're going to continue to see a difference of opinion with China on a number of issues, but that doesn't mean we can't continue to collaborate where it's in our mutual interest to do so. I'd just like to add the <clears throat> fact that when this all got started and we negotiated the uh, Outer Space Treaty, it really were uh, the U.S. and Soviets, if they agreed, almost everybody else could agree and so on. But today, we have uh, over 80 countries in the Committee on the Peaceful Use of Outer Space, and that includes uh, Cuba and China and Russia and so on. And the whole idea of getting unanimous agreement becomes very, very difficult and so on. So part of the problem that I think we have is that we do have a structure that uh, is uh, creaking because uh, we have too many countries trying to reach unanimous agreement on things, and that's why I think we are pushed back to what we've talked here today of uh, so-called uh, uh, transparency and confidence building measures and soft law and best practices and so on, and uh, then things can grow from there. But it is very hard to get things through the UN processes with over 80 countries on the committee. Next, please. If I may, um, first of all, thank you very much. Uh, I'm wondering, we've talked a lot about, it seems like there's a lot of exploitation of some of the lower or orbits today, right? Um, I wonder as we move higher and higher out of Earth's gravity well, um, say geosync or some of the higher um, orbits, does the military worry at all about some of our very high value systems, uh, early warning satellites for nuclear missile launches and such? Uh, once commercial satellites are reaching those altitudes. Don't see too many uniforms on this panel. <laughs> right. I'm going to be able to answer that. I think I'll go back to what I, I said a little bit earlier, which is, I mean, I, I think there's always going to be a worry when you have more and more things going up there, but uh, we're, we're reaching an era where it's tough to hide things in space. I mean, we have the technology right. to see pretty much where everything's at. So I think you're going to see the military adjust a little bit. I can't speak for them. But I think their posture is going to be uh, more enabling of, of commercial industry in the U.S. Because, like I said, if we don't help people do it here, 
they're going to do it somewhere else, and it's going to be an even bigger problem at that point. But uh, you, you've got great cooperation among all the principals. You know, about a month ago or so, the secretary, um, along with Administrator Brian Stein and General Height, you know, they were on a panel together. They had breakfast that morning. They talked about all of these issues um, in a really exciting way. I mean, in a very intimate, friendly way. And, and it's a full whole of government team approach. And you know, they're they're all attentive and excited to see those big things happen deeper into space. Everybody wants that to happen. I mean, you've, you've got the secretary. He spent the weekend studying up on Jupiter and all the new moons and planets being discovered. So I mean, that's, that's the type of person we're dealing with. And we've got to ride the wave of, of interest and excitement as, as long and fast as we can. The, the features of a good space traffic management system with the commercial and, and, and government LEO low Earth orbit are just as important in GEO. And they're of, of intense interest to our, our DOD partners as well, just like AIS systems on, on ships. You want to know where they are, and you want to make sure they're all broadcasting the same way so you can track them. So it's definitely an interest. If it works well for all of us, it'll work well for um, our, our security side as well. OK. I see no further questions. I know that the weather is probably going to get uh, worse. Uh, so. Uh, I think uh, we, unless there's uh, someone wanting to make a last-ditch uh, question, thank all of our wonderful panelists for their... Uh